So tonight, um, what I want to talk about is just sharing some thoughts about compassion. Compassion as it is uh, an expression of uh, steady awareness. Compassion as a natural expression of the pure heart, the pure mind. As we can explore it and experience it here, in our practice here. And what made me um, want to just talk about it a little bit, mostly listening to people (laughs) in the groups, and certainly a lot of what um, we all experience is difficult experience. That's at least 50% of most of our lives and a lot of the things that happen in practice. And also in a couple of days ago, in one group somehow, not to give any specifics, but the subject of compassion and metta, which is, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with that term, it's another um, state of mind and heart called, translated into English usually as loving kindness, as a kind of friendliness, open-hearted connection. And in the group, the discussion was just coming up because one or two people were experiencing a kind of spontaneous, strong compassion or metta just from the steady awareness and as the discussion just kind of revolved with all different people, a kind of a surprise or um, finding it a bit unexpected that uh, the compassion was coming up so strongly in this awareness practice. Because for those of you uh, who are sort of new to this style, one of the other kinds of practices that we teach, that we learn from our Burmese teachers, is the specific deliberate cultivation of metta, the loving kindness state of mind, or of compassion. And those are specific practices that we do that are um, focusing, one-pointed practices. So of course, they're, they work together with insight practice with vipassana, but they're not vipassana. So you, you can't do both at the same time, right? And so just somehow, I just got the impression, which could be completely wrong, as we all know, what we think we hear and decide it means often has very little connection to what was actually said or what the person meant. Um, Anyway, uh, I just wanted to talk about the fact that it's not like they're two separate things. It's not as if, wow, it's so strange if metta or compassion or appreciative joy, equanimity come up in the awareness practice, you know, when we haven't been really just cultivating that. So what I want to talk about, and specifically compassion, just because you you can only pick one and it's very useful in terms of our experience here, it's the natural expression of the pure mind, the pure heart, in the appropriate situation. So the... um, there's called four attitudes of mind, attitudes of heart, you could say, towards living beings that are often called the four, uh, well, the translation into English is divine abidings. So they're like this beautiful states of heart and mind. One is, is metta, loving kindness, which is just this open-hearted friendliness, connectedness, natural, sort of like you'd feel if you go out and you're just in a nice space, you're not filled with aversion or greed, you know, and you walk out. Say there's two little kids playing or two little puppies playing, and it's just kind of like, oh, you just naturally feel a friendliness, right? Unless you're a real meanie. And, 
So when you naturally feel that, that's just naturally metta. It's no big deal. It's normal and natural when the mind isn't clouded with greed, confusion, or all caught up in ourselves, right? Compassion is that quality connected mind, that the response of the heart and mind, that same open heart and mind, when it meets the suffering aspect of a being, kind of the empathy, the quivering of the heart, the mind, the openness and connectedness in the suffering. If what we meet in a being in, with the same open, connected awareness is their happy aspect, they're having a lot of happiness and success, the natural response is mudita, appreciative joy. So, and this is a great thing. You, know, you're like, you don't have to have great stuff happening yourself. Someone else can be really happy, and that can bring out the happiness in us. It's true. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's a great way to be happy. <laughs> and equanimity, which as an attitude, Steve talked a lot about it as, um, you know, in the subtlety of the mind, but also as a specific state of mind and heart in relationship to beings, it arises basically if there's something going on with a being, someone that we really can't do anything about. Like knowing, you know, they have their own karma and we can't fix everything. And so it's a, the mind that's really at ease, connected. It's not disconnect. Really connected but non-reactive in response to a being situation. It's like this. So, and as I say, they're all natural expressions of wisdom. Natural responses of the heart and mind that is Pure, even just pure in a moment. The Tibetans have a way of talking about the nature of mind, dividing into three, dividing what doesn't really exist into three things that you can't really separate. But this is how it is that we talk, right? No wonder we're all confused. So anyway, the qualities of the nature of mind, you could say, depending which angle. So when we're talking about whatever arises is known by awareness, and all objects, awareness doesn't care, all objects are equal. That's the looking at the emptiness aspect, meaning empty of a separate, self-existing, isolated self. You know, it's all connected, the emptiness, all equal. But that doesn't lead to an indifferent disconnect, which is what our rational mind might think. Well, if everything's the same, and as we've been saying, awareness doesn't care. Awareness doesn't care. What, what do you mean? You know, I want to care. Just, just a disconnect, gray, who cares? It's not who cares. It's like it doesn't get involved and reactive. So that side is looking at the emptiness. Another is the naturally awake, knowing quality. Sort of like that big mind points to this morning where the sound arises and it's just naturally known. It's just a natural quality of mind. It's not like you think, now I think a sound's going to come in a minute, so I better crank up the knowing so I can recognize, hear it. You know, it just happens completely spontaneously. It's an amazing thing, but it's so common we just, you know, we don't even really look at it. So that's what we're looking at. And the third... <sighs> the Tibetans say that the third quality is called ceaselessly responsive. In other words, it's not just cooled out, emptiness, whatever happens, it's known, never mind. But 
one of these four responses arise naturally in the appropriate um, activity when, when met with the appropriate person. It's not like we have to go looking for it. And sure, most of the time our mind isn't quite in that pure state. We've talked about that a lot. But I just want to um, talk specifically about compassion just as kind of a shorthand for all of the ceaselessly responsive, beautiful states of mind. Because it may seem sometimes like it's far away. We're really having to work for it. And we're so overwhelmed when we, when we experience a deeply loving or compassionate moment. And it's true, we are, because it is kind of sad to me that it seems so far away and unfamiliar and that we're much more friendly and at home with the big Ds, as you want to call them, <laughs> the defilements, you know. We may not like them, but we're really at home with them. So, and it just makes total sense, even to me in a rational way, that in any moment, not wait till total awakening, but in any moment when our mind is not clouded, when our awareness is not clouded by wanting, by aversion, or by it's all about me. The relentless, obsessive self-referencing of almost every perception. Have you noticed that? And it's not, this isn't to judge, this is just to notice, you know. You hear a sound and it goes, well, I hope people see I didn't do that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Everything, oh, the snow, snow, oh, it's going to affect me, it's going to be cold tonight, you know. It's like, it's just, it's not a bad thing, but it's just the way our minds work. And so when this, all this, you know, it, this self-referencing it, it leads to, often, not, in a, not even in a big way, but in a little way, is kind of like a kind of calibrating, managing, figuring it out, making it comfortable for myself, making, you know, it might come out of fear, it might come out of wanting. The first few days of a retreat, you, maybe you don't remember anymore, way back there with the dinosaurs, the first few days of this retreat. <laughs> But you, you know, so you're kind of trying to, to manage it. Where are you going to sit in the dining room? Where's the best place? And who's going to sit near me? And who can I stand to sit near? And who do I not want to sit near? And what's the best time to eat? And what about my job? And where am I in the hall? And getting it all, you know. It's little stuff, right? But how much airtime does it take up? And it's just kind of everything is calibrated in terms of what does this mean about me and my comfort and getting through the retreat? No, 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 no. So when that drops away, even for a moment, it's such a huge relief. And there's all this energy that's bound up in that, that's available for connection with life, for recognizing the bigger picture. You don't even have to think about it. It's just naturally the heart, the mind is more open, more connected, free from resistance and self, you know, this kind of sense of self that separates us. And this isn't some big thing, now go out and get rid of sense of self. I'm not saying that. Just notice the moments, which I'm sure you hear a sound, and the first thought isn't, what does that mean about me? You just hear a sound. It's like, ah. And we can see the big picture. Respond from wisdom. That's what we mean by the steadiness of awareness. We see the big picture. 
There's a story I heard on the radio. I guess it's true. It was on public radio. (laughs) I mean, you never really know. It's like too good a story. I have trouble believing it's true. Just a little story, but I told it last year in Switzerland, and someone came up and gave me more detail, so at least someone else heard it too. And so apparently in London, I think, when they were building the big millennium thing, they built this millennium bridge, a a new footbridge over the Thames River. And... So apparently when they first opened the bridge and like several hundred people were walking over the bridge and this, oh, this story was talking about something called enlightened self-interest, which they think had been like a, a financial policy. So if everyone acts from enlightened self-interest, everything would be okay. So this was like in 2009, you know, just, hmm, something about that didn't really work. What could it have been? <laughs> So they were using this example. So everyone, hundreds of people are walking over the bridge and the bridge starts shaking. You know, the bridge starts like really wobbling over to one side and quite embarrassing having just been built, you know. And so everyone on the bridge, so it's like this, they each acted from enlightened self-interest but with the focus on me. So it's leaning this way so everyone stepped over the other way. So that didn't really fix things. It just kind of, you know, made the whole thing worse. So you get a sense of that. We, even when we're trying to act in a helpful way, when it's this obsessive self-referencing, we can't see the big picture. Okay, so that's how it is for us a lot of the time. No blame, just starting to recognize that's how it is. And this is what our practice in all its forms, not to get rid of it, but just to see, oh, that's what's happening. And we start to see through it. Everyone's expressed moments of that. So remember, um, well, you don't have to remember. It doesn't matter. But I read from Dingo Kensey Rinpoche one night um, about, he's talking about three fundamental attitudes of the path, and just in his point of view. The first one being renunciation. Remember, seeing through the, just getting um, exhausted, giving up, having a weariness, a disillusionment with some sorrow, with the endless quest for gratification. Just kind of say, ah, this doesn't really work. And we've talked about that a lot. The second attitude he talks about is compassion, which he, he says in this way is born when one realizes that both the individual sense of self and all the appearances of the phenomenal world are actually empty of any intrinsic independent existence. That's that yata, bhuta, all conditions coming together. When one sees the suffering that comes from one's own and from others' fundamental ignorance about this, you know, which, which misunderstands the display of appearances as being composed of separate, permanently existing entities. That's not perceiving impermanence, as Steve talked about last night. So when one sees how much suffering comes from this misunderstanding. One who has, even for a moment, understood this absence of independent existence, you naturally act from the boundless compassion that you feel for those who, under the spell of ignorance, are wandering and suffering in samsara. So you get that sense when you know in those moments when you're having 
just an insight and you really see, oh, it's just like this. It's just, what's the problem? And you just see someone else who's so, in that moment, so caught in the fear or the wanting or the anger that we were caught in yesterday, but now we're seeing through it. That can elicit not, oh, the stupid jerk, but real compassion. Compassion, that empathy with, wow, this suffering is so extra, you know? And that's really the seed of compassion. And the third, he calls pure perception. Pure perception. He's talking about this in the most ultimate, highest level, but I'm going to refer to it as a moment-to-moment level. Pure perception that recognizes the Buddha nature in all sentient beings and sees the primordial purity in all phenomena. Every sentient being is endowed with the essence, the potential of Buddhahood, just as oil pervades every sesame seed. Ignorance is simply to be unaware of this potential in us, in others, like a poor person who does not know there is a pot of gold buried beneath his hut. So the journey to enlightenment is thus a rediscovery of this forgotten nature, like seeing the ever-brilliant sun again as the clouds that have been hiding it are blown away. That same metaphor. So it's not a one-time rediscovery, but when I talk about a moment of pure mind, pure citta, where there's awareness, maybe the five faculties, but not the kalesa, this potential for accurate recognition, for seeing the wider view, for the natural arising response of compassion or metta, appreciative joy or equanimity. It's just nature. It's just the natural response. So a lot of what we're, we're hoping in this retreat, in any retreat, is of course that the trust in the steadiness of awareness grows in each of us, and also that we begin to have more verified faith in that this is the more, the more true, the more deeper response of our natural mind. Greed and hatred and confusion seem so. They're nature, but they seem so. That's what's the truest thing, but it's not. And we all see that in our experience, people, this is like a composite example I'm giving, not a particular one. But one thing about aversion, which is how we mostly experience the unpleasant, isn't it? Let me give an well, let's come back to this example. When Steve talked last night about the first noble truth, you know, and all the, all the difficulties of that, you get a sense, maybe, of why, I get a sense anyway, the more I practice, of why the Buddha may have felt when he had to distill all his teachings down and he picked four truths, you know, as kind of like the hub, why he felt that to point out this truth of dukkha was so essential. You know, so Steve talked all about it, don't need to. But you can see, maybe not, maybe you don't agree with what I'm saying, which would be great if you don't, because what's our habitual response? in the face of any of those aspects of dukkha that Steve talked about. Just when we're not paying attention, just normal. What's our natural response to the unpleasant, to uncertainty? You know, it's like the habit is anger, right? Or dislike, or aversion, or fear. That's just normal. 
So the anger can be outer blame or inner blame, some way of trying to push the experience away, keep it away. And if we can't keep it away, then the other kind of natural response is kind of like a passive submission, like a resigned, all right, I'll just accept it. This is what's happening, you know, and I just kind of stand it until it's finally gone. And you can tell from how I'm saying it, this also has an element of aversion. This is not acceptance. This is not wisdom. But sometimes that's, that's all we know, you know? We can just kind of endure it till it's gone, but it's with this holding ourselves separate. Or just outright total denial that it's even going on. Which is, by the way, isn't denial an amazing faculty of mind? I mean, it's just incredible. So like denial of suffering in ourselves, outside of ourselves. I'll just tell a little story. Um, I was in the hospital a long, long time ago. I'd been there a few days, and um, there was a lot of pain going on, and they hadn't figured out what it was. So it wasn't, I wasn't like in the most balanced, wonderful state. Okay, let's put it that way. And um, they were trying to give me an IV, and my veins had sort of co- collapsed after a few days, and the nurse couldn't get it to work. So that's not like horrible pain, but it's, 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 it's unpleasant. It's definitely painful, right? And then the nurses couldn't do it, so she ran out and grabbed a doctor in the hallway. And I thought, no offense to any doctors here, I thought, oh, no, because the nurses are the ones who do it all the time, not the doctors. <laughs> oh, no, that's not a good sign. You know? <laughs> so the doctor came in, and he's doing it. And um, you know, it wasn't hard. So just, I was just wasted. So little tears were rolling. I wasn't really complaining, but just a little tear rolled down. He just looks at me and goes, what's the matter with you? This doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> Just totally, you know, and I can understand why, because he's doing, the motivation was to help. And when we're, when it's so uncomfortable for us to be with our own pain or any pain, then we can't be there for someone else. The empathy, that's compassion, isn't there, because we can't be with our own pain. So I could really understand that. Not that I was analyzing it at the moment, I was just like, (laughs) but, but I can really see, to be able to help, that's how we had to cut off. So, okay, fine. We all do that. Not on purpose, but our mind has that capacity. It's quite amazing. So, what we start to see with the steadiness of awareness is that there's a whole other possibility, a whole other way of being, which is bringing this steady, non-judging awareness to whatever's happening, And sometimes when I'm talking about the compassionate aspect of awareness, when things are difficult, sometimes reminding ourselves that the awareness, awareness doesn't care, but it can also be kind. It can also just kindly not care (laughs) and just be with whatever's happening. And that can affect a complete change in our understanding of the situation. So little things here, I'm making this up like a sort of composite but if something's been going on or someone here has been doing something that bugs you, right? So whether they're making a noise or you don't like the way they look or they're breathing loud behind you or you don't even know what, but you see this person and there's aversion. You just don't want to be around them for whatever reason. Or you may know the reason because they make this noise, you know, whatever. And so 
you know, just being human, we can't help but make noises, right? And so um, our normal way would be either we just try and push the whole thing away and pretend we're equanimous and loving. That doesn't work, right? But what aversion does, the Buddha described it, what makes aversion grow is aversion works by giving unwise attention to the repugnant aspect of something. Right? Have you noticed that? So somebody or something's bugging you, really bringing up aversion. And it's their fault, of course. They're making you feel aversion. And the mind just can't stay away from that thing that's bugging you. Like Thich Nhat Hanh gives the example, if you have one rough tooth and all the rest of your teeth are fine, your tongue will go to that rough tooth like every five minutes. You're not running your tongue over the rest of your teeth, but, you know, and you feel it and you get upset. You feel it and you get upset. You feel it and you get upset. And, you know, it can go on for days. That's unwise attention to the repugnant aspect of something that's, and we just get focused in on that. So with our steadiness of attention, we say just keep noticing, let awareness just notice the whole process. So, so many people have given examples of where you start to see more of the whole process. First, there's that person making that sound, then you keep watching and so, oh, that's, that's a sound. It's just a sound. Being with the sound, the sound's just the sound. Then you see the person, well, the person's just a person. And, oh, there's that thought. They remind me of my third grade teacher who was so mean to me. Ah, and, every, and you know, and you kind of see that. And in the seeing of just the whole process, I'm making this up, this was nobody's story. In the seeing of the whole process, suddenly that aversion in that moment towards that person is gone, isn't it? And you see them like with new eyes. Perhaps there's just the connectedness of metta, friendliness, oh, you know? Or maybe there's compassion. You see whatever noise they're making, they can't help. And you feel compassion, just quite naturally. It's not something you have to try and create. It may seem like a small thing, but please do notice it. The effect of steady awareness meeting what's happening, not trying to push it away or figure it out, naturally opens out of the self-interest and aversion to seeing the whole picture more clearly, and the wholesome, pure state of heart and mind arises as a response. This can all just be a second. The next second, it can be gone. We all know that. But that doesn't mean it isn't true and it isn't real in the moments we're experiencing it. So compassion. Generally, one way of defining it is the tenderness, the quivering of the heart in response to the suffering of another. Or this empathy with suffering. It's generally... And I describe it as meeting suffering, and not just another's, but our own. And that's where I really am going to concentrate the rest of the, the talk. Meeting what's arising, the difficult experience, with just this open, simple awareness presence. Not pulling back, not shutting off. And the big picture compassion is generally spoken of, you know, as the motivation for action. Compassion is the movement, the action to alleviate the suffering of another, which is certainly in the world of action. In the, in the biggest picture in some of the, the Buddhist teachings, it would be the strongest, the most powerful expression of compassion would be the, um, 
the motivation, the commitment of bodhicitta, the intention to practice, to come to full awakening in order to awaken all other beings, this, this real sense of my practice is all for the awakening of others. So that's you know, the grandest uh, expression of compassion. But what I want to talk about here is recognizing that in the way the Buddha, I don't know, maybe Steve said this, I don't know, but in the way the Buddha described all actions, especially of speech, of mind, that the seed of all actions is in the mind, isn't it? All actions originate in the mind. The intention that gives rise to any action is mental. Someone was talking about that in a group, just playing with drinking tea and just kind of waiting till the mental intention would arise to lift the cup, you know? And you can play with that. So you can just kind of feel, oh, lift the cup, you know? And sometimes it doesn't, when there's no time frame, you can sit there for two hours, kind of oh, lift the cup, no, lift the cup, you know? You can just kind of play with this mental intention in the mind. It's really, it's fun to play with this stuff. The intention's just the little urge to speak, to move, even to think. And as with awareness, it comes together with whatever motivation, whatever qualities, whatever mental factors are in the mind. So compassion or hatred or saying something harsh or saying something loving or just getting up and walking to the bathroom, everything comes with the intention that comes together with whatever particular mental states are with it. Okay? And so compassion compassionate action, the action to alleviate another's suffering, originates with this compassion, with this empathy, with this tenderness for oneself, for beings in the mind. And an action that might look like you're trying to alleviate suffering to others or even to yourself, you can't tell what someone else's intention. Hey, heck, half the time we can't tell what our own is, right? So you could be trying to do something to help someone and really mean it, but the the internal motivation could be a kind of a fear. Have you ever experienced that? Like being with someone who's suffering or seeing someone in a difficult situation and you want to help, but actually what what you feel is a kind of fear. As in a little way, I sometimes feel that if I'm walking in a city and there's a homeless person or someone who seems, you know, really kind of mentally ill and 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 wanting some money, and I want to give, and I also feel a little bit afraid. And then I'm ashamed of feeling a little bit afraid. All this stuff is going on. So I may go and offer some some dana, and in a way that's a generous action, it's a somewhat compassionate action, but I also can see the times when it's just that movement of, here, may this help, and it feels beautiful and connected. And other times, oh, no, there's fear, and it's fear of being in the face of pain. I mean, that's a natural part of our human humanness. So here, on the retreat, what we have the opportunity to explore is really the difference in our own mind, in our own heart, in the habits of our mind and heart. When this response to suffering, and here it's our own suffering, is this you know, aversion, fear, whatever, or when there's the potential for the steady awareness to just meet what's happening with this openness that allows for the arising of empathy and wisdom and compassion. This is really what what we learn, what we can practice, what we can work with in our retreat here. So the Dalai Lama, as you know, is, is meant to be the incarnation of you know, compassion, 
talking about how does compassion develop in our mind stream? How does it strengthen? And he says it's from deep insight into what suffering is. Deep insight, which arises by opening to, by being present with our own experience. Where else can we start? And through this openness, you know, it's a practice. It's what we're practicing here to our own experience. Then the compassion strengthens into a sense of empathy, connectedness with other beings. So have you noticed, let's say if, if you're um, going through something difficult, whether you're ill or maybe you're going through a relationship crisis or you know, just some difficult emotional thing or physical thing, and you have different friends or different people you know who come and try to comfort you or try to help, do you get a sense where you can feel the difference between someone who they want to help genuinely, but actually in themselves there, there isn't uh, the ease and the, the, in that moment the awareness that can just simply be with the pain in themselves. So the helping often then takes the form of you could do this to fix it, you could do that to fix it, you could do this other thing to fix it. And it's well meant, but it doesn't have the same sense. It just doesn't feel quite like the, the same kind of compassion as when someone else sits down and they can just be there with you, right? It's not like saying, oh, I know or what, but they can just be there. They can be able, the heart, the mind, the awareness really can just flow into that pain, whatever it's engendering in our own mind stream at that moment, you know? And it just feels so different. That's the sense of empathy, the sense of um, connectedness with other beings in terms of compassionate action, compassionate presence with suffering. And so here and through our lives, this is really the field where we learn that. As the Dalai Lama said, we're exploring for ourselves our own experience without judgment. Just as is exactly what we've been saying, just let the awareness come into the whole process and watch what happens when we come face to face with a difficult situation. That's why, on a retreat anyway, I'm keeping this to retreat, why the difficult times in retreat are so important. We always say that and people think, yeah, right, you just say that to shut us up and keep us here. But they're <laughs> really so important. We don't feel like we're being totally mindful because we think if we were totally mindful, it would all clear up, don't we? Even no matter we've said it a million times, don't you really think if you're doing it right, this difficult thing is going to clear up? And it doesn't. And you go through a whole sitting or a whole day and you're in and out of, you know, there's awareness and then you're lost in a version of fear and awareness and lost and it just, like, what's the point of this? But then the next day, two hours later or the week later, a similar kind of thing starts and suddenly the mind is just there and touching it and open to it. And the whole experience, it still is unpleasant, but the insight to what's really going on arises out of it. And it's a completely different freeing experience. And out of that comes compassion or joy or love, a kind of an understanding we can't get except through the steady experience of awareness. So in some ways we could think of it as 
this is a little too simplistic, but you can kind of think of it this way. As whatever's arising right now in your experience, beautiful, difficult, but we'll stick with the difficult ones. We don't complain about the beautiful ones, although we get caught in wanting, but we're just not talking about that tonight. So the difficult ones. Whatever's arising right now, or yesterday, or arises in the next moment, it's the result of all the previous causes and conditions coming together, right? Yata, Buddha, things as they have come to be right now. In this moment, it can't be any different. So thinking it's my fault, it's wrong, la, 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 we do that, but useless. Can't be any different. How the mind, the awareness is meeting, so that's kind of like past karma, but how in this moment, awareness, our mind, how we're meeting this moment, that's the creation of present moment, comma, of present moment action. So the most, you know, stupid or horrific or boring or difficult stuff could be going on over and over and over. Just every moment that there's that willingness to just meet it with clear awareness. Even you can't do it, but there's the willingness. Or just to remember, okay, awareness can be kind. What's going on? And oh, this pain, this aversion, eh, I can't do it. It's one big mess. One big mess feels like this. In that moment, that's a cultivation, a development of compassion. It's, it's how we're meeting the moment that these wholesome qualities are developed. And also the unwholesome ones. If you're meeting the moment with a hammer, if you're meeting the moment with just totally believing judgment and blame, then that's what's being cultivated. But as soon as you see that with kindness, you're back in a moment of compassion. So it's always available. And whether it's difficult or whether it's beautiful, this is how we're cultivating compassion. And it's really powerful. And we don't see it moment to moment until suddenly something that we've just been struggling against or fighting with or just seems unbearable, suddenly their perspective shifts because we're able to just touch it rather than trying to run away from it. So we start where we are. But it's really scary sometimes, isn't it? This isn't what I wanted to spend my time with. Or where I am is too mundane. That's another way you can get on yourself. I don't have like big enough suffering. Does anyone here think they don't have big enough suffering? But it doesn't matter what it is. It's just the habits in the mind. We start where we are. And it's hard because of the habits. I don't know about you, but I really see, as I said before, the general habit to difficulty is aversion. And it's as if We trust aversion and fear and anger to protect us, right? It feels right we should stay separate from difficult and scary things. So, of course, it's easier to believe that if it's someone out there. But that same habit of mind comes inside. So there's a pain or there's an unpleasant situation. So better to stay separate from it. And all our strategies are like, how can I somehow, how does I, how can I somehow hold myself separate? But when there's anger, ill will in the mind, we can't see clearly. This is from the Buddha. When one dwells with a mind obsessed and oppressed by ill will, dislike, aversion, 
and does not understand as it really is the escape from arisen ill will, on that occasion one neither knows or sees as it really is one's own good or the good of others or the good of both. So even, you know, we're angry, but we're trying to have good intentions, you can't see clearly your own good or the good of others. But yet somehow many of us have been, you know, kind of grown up trained that this is what's going to protect us from pain. We don't, we don't really trust the soft, kind awareness, the willingness to just be steadily with whatever's arising. The Dalai Lama, again, he was asked one time about what looks like a lack of compassion in human society. He said, perhaps we just pay less attention to compassion and caring. We reinforce it less. Whereas in some sense, we fully embrace hostility and anger as an emotional state, fueling it and reinforcing it. If we were to give the same amount of energy, attention, and reinforcement to compassion and caring, they would definitely be stronger. So this is a question from Joko Beck, but this is a simple way to just ask yourself when we're all caught up, or we can just feel we're caught in some difficult situation. Can I find in myself a willingness to rest in this confusing and painful situation? I think it's a great question. Some of we trying to analyze and see clearly and note it and get it all clear, but What's the motivation? Get the heck rid of it. Can I find in myself a willingness to rest in this confusing and painful situation? Can you just hear the ease, the kindness that lets awareness come into that and see the whole thing in a different way? The wisdom, the compassion, the clear seeing, that's really natural. All we need to do is set up the conditions for it to arise. It's the aversion and the hatred. It's nature, but it's not our natural being. It's not our natural mind. You know, Bishop Desmond Tutu from South Africa, who's a Nobel Peace Prize winner and, you know, part of the uh, author, one of the authors of the whole reconciliation process after apartheid came to an end. I heard him on the radio once. He was in Boston, and he was talking to a group of uh, young men, I think probably young adolescent men from um, some of the poorer sections of Boston. And they were, they were saying to him, you know, that they say, we live in the middle of a culture of violence. You know, what can we do? How can we learn to love? You know, have to protect ourselves. And, and uh, Desmond Tutu, he said, he said, we learn to hate. It's not natural. We've learned how to hate. And so the students said, well, what can we do? There's nothing we can do. We're in the middle of this culture of violence. And Bishop Tutu said, and you could, see, you could hear at the radio, but you could hear he was looking at each person very, and he goes, you, 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 you can make a difference. One person can make a big difference. Start with you. That's what we're each doing, starting with us, just starting to explore, see if it makes any sense that we learn to hate, that it's not necessary. It doesn't have to be the way.
One of the other ways that uh, trying to keep ourselves separate from experience that comes up or that aversion manifests, especially, I mean, it's in our life, but it shows up so much on retreat. So many of you have mentioned it already, is this particular form of delusion, confusion, that it's aversion that manifests as self-judgment, right? A few of you have noticed the kind of self-judgment that comes up. Do you recognize it's a kind of self-hatred, self-doubt, when we feel dissatisfied with what's happening, right? Do you, have you ever noticed how sometimes the thoughts of self-judgment masquerade as wisdom, right? Well, this isn't right. This isn't going right. I should be more moments of clarity. This painful thing shouldn't be happening. It's happening because I'm not a good enough yogi. It's happening because I took that nap today. It's happening because I didn't take that nap today. It's happening because I ate too much food. I'm just investigating. I'm just seeing, but it's not just, it's not just really getting there because I'm just no good. Bottom line, I'm hopeless. You know, it masquerades as wisdom. We don't see the aversion, but all of the function of it is trying to hold ourselves separate from some experience we're experiencing as unpleasant, as not good enough. It might just be the self-hatred itself. But that's just another aspect I wanted to point out. And so see if you can just start to notice, continue to notice. We can't, we can't only do it willfully, but we can start to notice as well as the steadiness of awareness, we wake up and we notice we're not aware. Okay, we've all been practicing that. But noticing, if you can, the times when we think we're aware, we're sort of aware. Well, we're pretty sure we're aware of what's happening. But there's still this uh, kind of a feeling of disconnect. You know, you kind of feel like you're not quite landing with your awareness on what's happening. Or you're kind of disconnected or confused. And I've noticed in myself, on retreat and in daily life, sometimes in daily life it can go on longer. When I start to notice there's a feeling of kind of alienation or disconnection or you know, disconnected from myself, not connected with others, not empathy. And I don't really know what's going on, but it's just somehow, do you know the, do you know the sense I mean at all? Or no, no, I just, sometimes I don't know if I'm communicating at all. Um, I finally got, so when I noticed that, finally, after trying to figure it out and all the, mas- the aversion masquerading as wisdom, I'll suddenly go, oh, something's going on that the mind is resisting just opening into. You don't even know what it is sometimes. So I'll just stop and go, what's happening? Just let my attention, my awareness, just kind of like kind of like syrup, you know, just pour it through my body and just go, what's happening? Not trying to figure it out, but just land here. And I may not get the verbal answer, but almost always I'll feel some tension, some tightness. And, oh, it's, I would say just pretty much always, once I recognize that's happening, and I just, what's happening now? There's something unpleasant or scary or just that I don't want to be with. And in the being with it is the relief. Again, the empathy, the connectedness, the wholeness, that trying to hold ourselves separate from what's happening, which is impossible anyway, is the setup for separation and delusion. So whatever it might be. And then even though you feel the pain, the sorrow, the grief, the fear, the sadness more fully, 
it's actually less suffering in the sense of there's, this is my more sense of, of wholeness, of being alive, or again, a tenderness for life, a tenderness for being, including oneself, believe it or not, that isn't possible when we're trying to hold ourselves separate. So we start where we are. Whatever we're experiencing here in our life, that's where we start. Just to touch this difficult experience, the aversion, the physical discomfort, the fear, the loneliness, the, you don't even know what it is. Just to touch it with kind awareness, and then the next moment and the next moment, and having the trust that the wisdom, the compassion, naturally will strengthen from this. I mean, you have to try it. Of course, you don't trust it till you see it, but do notice when it happens. And once we touch a difficult situation, again, when there's wisdom, the response we make is much more, it can be much more appropriate. Because as the Buddha said, we're not, our, our eyes aren't clouded by ill will and aversion. We can recognize our own good or the good of another more accurately. Okay, I'll tell a personal story. Quite some years ago, over 20 years ago, I developed a kind of a, a physical condition, an autoimmune condition that it's fine, basically fine now, but that's why I sit in a chair. But when it was developing, it was much stronger symptoms than now, and it took a long time for any doctor to figure out what it was, and you know, the whole story, a lot of pain and stiffness and this and that. It was much, much stronger than it is now. And so just the normal stuff that one goes through, um, the fear in the mind, the uh, resistance to the unpleasant sensations, and to see when the, there was fear, there are two things. One that I really learned when the mind would start going, you're never going to be able to take a walk. You're never going to be able to do this. You're never going to be able to do that. I was so grateful for awareness practice because that mind would start up and I'd see it and go, I have no idea. I don't need to go there. That's just fear. Really could do that with the thoughts about future stuff that was just unknown. But what I'm, what I'm seeing now about the, the sense of learning how to just be with the experience, the physical experience was a little harder. It wasn't excruciating pain, which is a whole other thing, but a kind of a heaviness, a stiffness, pain that came and went a lot of the time. And when it's frequent, kind of dull background, it's kind of almost easier, you notice it, but it's easier to kind of pretend, oh, I'm just balanced with this. Well, yeah, it's there in the background. We're present. It's all, all okay. And I, after some time, people were cold really affects me. So people, well, you have to leave here. You have to go live in Arizona. You have to stop doing any kind of work. And, you know, I was thinking, well, I'm going to go in Arizona and live in a corner and never do anything. You know? <laughs> and there was, I gradually realized there was quite some you know, fear and sadness, but actually aversion towards my body. You know, the body was letting me down. You know, it wasn't supposed to do this. And it doesn't seem to matter what age we're at. It was a, a long time ago, but I'm sure it was still, no, it's not supposed to do this, not yet. Not till I'm 95, you know. It's not, and, but that again, a sort of subterranean, not quite aware of it. And then at some point, I don't know, something happened, and I just started to, I recognized that sense of trying to hold myself separate from this unpleasant experience. 
And it's sort of, I didn't have that quotation from Joko Beck, but it was the same idea, this kind of compassion. Oh, first, compassion for the body, almost as if it was a separate being. And I thought, if someone sitting next to me's body was doing this, would I hate them? You know, you'd feel, oh, that's really hard. So I came back and could feel some compassion for the body. And then that sense from Joko Beck, well, can I just let myself rest in this unpleasant experience? And just started to meet the sensations just as they were with kindness, not every moment, but it was a major shift from trying to hold myself separate but pretending I wasn't, which meditators, we get really good at that, um, to just really dying into it with awareness, with kindness, and without any sense that that was going to make it go away or what healing meant or whatever. Just being with it, being with it. And I really felt like that changed everything. I don't mean, I'm not talking about changing the disease or healing the body, but changed everything in my mind from a sense of fear and victimization and like not being able to decide how to live my life to being able to say, oh, I could tell with quite quite clarity. I can do this. I can't do that. The body can handle this. It can't handle that. But I don't need to go live in Arizona. I can wear gloves. I can turn up the heat. I don't have to just sit in a room and never do anything. I think I'll go with my friends to India and travel around, which I did. You know, I was with friends that could also, they'll take care of me. And it's true. I sometimes couldn't get up into the, the rickshaws, you know, it was too high. So they'd push me. You know, it was like, it was okay. And I felt like because of the clarity, the, the steady kind awareness that let me just be with the unpleasantness over time, the wisdom comes in, you see the whole situation much more clearly, and you can make decisions based not on fear and not on resistance either, but on the clear information that awareness lets us see. And uh, I've always been really grateful, grateful for that. So we start where we are. Whatever's arising, what, what are the demons that are arising for you here on this retreat? Someone phrased it that way today, but it's a common phrasing. Okay, that's where we start. Can I find it in myself to rest, just to simply rest in this difficult and unpleasant situation? And if you can't, then you just rest in that I can't. That's the next arising thing. Just one moment at a time. One moment at a time. I really like the story of St. Francis. Maybe you've, you know this story. How it's just one moment at a time. We never know how it's going to go for us. So, I mean, he, didn't, he wasn't born St. Francis of Assisi, right? Uh, he was born a, a rich, to a rich merchant. And apparently, as a young man, he was quite wild, ran with a wild crowd. And he was kind of the leader of it, you know, the rich young guys drinking and carousing and everything. And um, at that time, there was a, uh, like a, a house where, where people with leprosy lived below the town. Of course, they kept people with leprosy away. People were afraid of that. And if someone with leprosy, now it's called Hansen's disease, was out walking, they had to ring a bell if they were walking on the road so that everyone could hear and stay away because there was so much fear. And Francis was very afraid. That was something he was very afraid of. Being even close to a person with leprosy, he was very afraid of it as a young man. 
And so one of, at least in biographies I've read, one of the kind of key moments of his life, this young dissolute man, was when he was passing um, on his horse some with leprosy. And I can't remember if it was two times or if I'm merging it into one, one situation. It doesn't really matter. But the tendency, he wanted to just throw down some money because he had money. But maybe either that time or the next time, he got off his horse. He stopped. He gave the money hand to hand. You know, he shook the guy's hand. He hugged the guy, whatever. And it was like this direct coming into contact with his fear, with his repugnance, like changed his life. And slowly, you know, from that one thing after the other after the other, he turned into St. Francis. <laughs> so, so, but it's like, we start where we are. Who knows? Maybe someone hears the next St. Francis in whatever tradition now. But we start where we are, whatever's going on. Can we find it in ourselves to bring this kind awareness and to see how wisdom and compassion is the natural response of the purified mind and heart. And when you forget it, never mind. There's again another moment. So thank you for listening. Let's just sit quietly a moment. These are the four boundless wishes of the Brahma Viharas. May all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. That's metta. May all beings be free from suffering and the causes of suffering. Compassion. May all beings never be separate from the highest happiness, which is free from suffering. Mudita. May all beings be free from delusion, attachment, and hatred, and abide in equanimity and peace. Upeha. <laughs>